It's a conversation that moves primarily in one direction, from the believer who prays to the God who hears. But what about when God appears silent? Is he really unresponsive? Well, the truth is we always have God's attention, so how should we respond when God seems silent? These are essential questions, and you'll be encouraged, I think, as you stick with us today for our current edition of The Land and the Book. Welcome. Our host is a lifelong student of the Middle East and respected author, Dr. Charlie Dyer. I'm John Geiger. And you know, Charlie, we've said it before, but many of us wonder what the future holds for Israel. While some things are very much uncertain, the Bible gives us an outline of what will happen in the last days. That's right, John. That's why our friends at Life and Messiah recently hosted a prophecy conference focused specifically on this topic, Israel and the Church Living in the Last Days. They're now making the videos of the conference available for early access exclusively to the Land and the Book listeners. You'll hear from many knowledgeable speakers on this topic, including Moody Radio host Michael Radelnik and me. Uh, These encouraging and informative videos will help you better understand God's future plans and how we can be actively waiting. To access this video series, visit lifeinmessiah.org and click on the Moody Radio button there to sign up. That's lifeinmessiah.org. Thank you, Charlie. And now let's take a look at current events from the Middle East as the war between Israel and Hamas drags on. What are the major headlines we need to watch for to understand the larger picture of what is actually happening? Uh, Here's some of the big picture items that can help. First, if places are mentioned in the stories, get a map or use Google Earth and try to identify the locations. Where's the fighting taking place? Where are the missiles landing? Uh, Just like a commander, try to get a sense of the big picture. And then second, listen to hear what Israel is doing to accomplish their larger objectives. Uh, they've said their goal is to eliminate Hamas's leadership, to eliminate Hamas's ability to fire rockets, uh, to eliminate the terror infrastructure, including the tunnels, and to remove Hamas's ability to govern Gaza. So what progress is being made? And then listen for information regarding negotiations for those being held captive. Now, in this case, Some of the private meetings, like Israel's former head of Mossad traveling to Egypt, might actually be more significant than the public meetings taking place. And then next, watch to see what's happening in the U.S. and Europe. A public relations battle is being waged on the streets and in the corridors of power right here. Don't ignore this battle because it could ultimately determine the level of support offered to Israel by our government and others. Now, here's the big picture as I see it right now. Israel has split the Gaza Strip in two. Their goal is to remove as many civilians from the northern half of the Strip as possible before going into the densely packed cities to root out Hamas. They hope to capture or kill Hamas's leadership there, and they also hope to rescue the hostages. They believe a main headquarters for Hamas is under the largest hospital in that area, and going after the commanders and forces hidden in those bunkers, that's going to be a major goal. They're also trying to shore up support for the war among news media and politicians. Uh, They're resisting pressure by the U.S. and the West to either have a ceasefire or at least a pause. Uh, Once that happens, they believe, Hamas would likely be able to survive. Few realize that this is actually the eighth major conflict between Israel and Hamas since Hamas took control of Gaza back in 2007. In the previous seven, outside pressure pushed for a ceasefire. But this time, Hamas slaughtered 1,400 people, women and children, young and old, and Israel is convinced the only way to stop this cycle of violence is to eliminate Hamas. That's why they don't want to stop and why they're not giving in to that pressure to have a ceasefire. 
Charlie, as you mentioned last week, one of the main casualties in any war seems to be the truth. What are some recent examples of fake news and distorted coverage designed to impact public opinion in this conflict, and how can we avoid being fooled? You know, the the amount of propaganda masquerading as news in this war is astounding. And it's true both here in the U.S. and worldwide. So the first step, understand where the propaganda is coming from and knowing where you can go to get reliable news. Now, here's one key fact. Israel has a free press. You can go online and find pro-Netanyahu and anti-Netanyahu reports, right-wing and left-wing takes on what's happening politically and militarily and failures and successes. Hamas has consistently provided distorted, one-sided coverage. Many of the so-called reporters in Gaza are paid by Hamas, and the reports are sensationalized and they're downright false often. You know, they reported Israel was using white phosphorus. Well, it wasn't true. They reported Israel attacked that hospital, killing 500 to 1,000 people. It turned out to be a misfired Islamic Jihad rocket that landed in the parking lot. They reported Israel attacked a convoy of civilians trying to flee south. But all the evidence points to Hamas ambushing those civilians. They reported an ambulance was hit by an Israeli missile. But they didn't report that the ambulance was being used by Hamas to transport fighters and weapons, not injured civilians. I keep going back. It was Winston Churchill who said, a lie gets halfway around the world before the truth has a chance to get its pants on. And that leads to the next step in how to avoid getting fooled. Don't jump to conclusions before hearing the rest of the story. Even the mainstream media has been guilty of reporting statements without first checking the facts. Finally, and this is really important, avoid video reports from social media, especially those from TikTok. TikTok is a Chinese-owned media platform featuring a great deal of inaccurate, biased information. In a survey, 51% of young adults justified Hamas's massacre of Israeli civilians largely because of TikTok videos, which are designed to reach millions of 18 to 24-year-olds. Since it's the only content source for many in that generation, they're being brainwashed by a flood of anti-Semitic propaganda. Uh, The key takeaway here, John, don't get sucked in, do your research, use credible resources, and check out opposing viewpoints. Charlie, it seems to me, though, there's a missing piece in this media war, and that's the capacity to get the facts out, the truth out. Uh, You know, I I head online to uh, the Jerusalem Post, to the Times of Israel, to other websites, and uh, even the Israeli government at the consulate level has offered video footage and photos that clearly offer evidence contrary to the stuff that's being stated in the media. But those stories, those images, those videos don't seem to be shown. Uh, What's the answer to that? Well, sadly, the answer is that uh, don't trust the media to uh, always want to present both sides. Uh, that's why people should go to places like the Jerusalem Post, the Times of Israel, Haaretz, uh, Eretz Sheva. They can see the videos. Israel, it may appear slow to get it out in, in our you know right now news cycle, but Israel wants to make sure they have the facts before they release something. And it's always better to wait a while and go to those sources and watch original video footage there. Uh, you'll get the true facts of what's happening. This is The Land and the Book with our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer. And amid all the horrors of war, God is still at work. Charlie, what are some of the encouraging stories coming out of Israel and Gaza? Yeah, and we do need this encouragement, John. I need to guard the names here, but I've received emails from several friends who live and minister in Israel, and they're a reminder that God is at work. Uh, One was from a pastor of an assembly in Jerusalem that we both know. Uh, He wrote to say his assembly, along with many others, have been cooking food and delivering it to families forced to flee their homes. 
They purchased winter clothing and school supplies. They provided money to help with utilities and rent and other needs for families whose spouses were called up to serve. Forty members of their congregation were called back into the reserves, including two of his adult children. So they drove to the border to take winter clothes for the entire unit, along with snacks for the group. While there, they also took time to pray with the soldiers. At the opposite end of the spectrum, I received an email from a friend who shared what's happening in the life of a Muslim background believer in Gaza. That believer sent a goodbye text expressing his love for Israel and his disdain for Hamas. He expects his life to end, and he is in physical danger, but he remains bold in sharing his faith. Finally, I saw a Facebook post from the wife of a believing Jewish guide. She described the impact of October 7 on Israelis. She had a number of friends and acquaintances who lost loved ones, but she ended by teaching a Hebrew word that means resilience. Though shocked by the tragedy and and by those condemning Israel and criticizing Israel for fighting to protect their citizens, she responded by writing, so we have no other choice than to show resilience, so we don't collapse under the weight of it all. Those are all good reminders for us to remember that God is at work in the lives of people on both sides of the battle lines, and we ought to be praying for the Jewish and Arab believers and asking God to protect them and to give them opportunities to share their faith. One of the uncertainties in this war involves the exact number of Israelis killed or captured by Hamas, and archaeologists are now at work to help provide answers. But why are they needed, and how specifically are they helping? Yeah, and to answer this, we need to understand what the soldiers found when they recaptured that region along the border with Gaza. They didn't just find dead bodies. Those could be identified without too much difficulty. But Hamas had also set buildings and cars on fire, incinerating the bodies inside. In some cases, only fragments of bones remained buried in the charred rubble. Uh, Using techniques developed while excavating destruction layers at ancient sites, the archaeologists are going through the charred remains of houses and cars, combing and sifting through the ash to find bone fragments or other material remains that can be used to identify those individuals. In the first month, they were able to identify the remains of 10 men, women, and children previously thought missing. They're treating these houses and cars like archaeological digs, but with one major difference. In a typical dig, they have little emotional attachment to any remains that are discovered because the person died several thousand years ago. In these digs, they're uncovering the remains of those who were alive just over a month ago. It's a heart-rending job, but they also know that what they're doing is helping families find closure. Well, so much to follow in this story, and you'll find updates as you stay with us here at The Land and the Book. Our website, thelandandthebook.org. Coming up, when God appears silent, is he? It's a conversation you don't want to miss on The Land and the Book. Prayer. It's a conversation that moves primarily in one direction, from the believer who prays to the God who hears. But what about when God appears silent? Is he really unresponsive? The truth is we always have God's attention, so how should we respond when God seems silent? These are essential questions, and we're about to explore them in depth next. Hey, welcome to segment two of The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger, inviting you to pause with me right now for a quick, refreshing idea on sharing the love of Christ with a Jewish friend. 
Obviously, any conversation about Jesus is a spiritual conversation. And if it's a spiritual conversation for Jesus, you have to wonder, isn't there opposition, particularly when you're sharing your faith with Jewish people, opposition to that very conversation? Wes Tabor is an ambassador for Life in Messiah. What do you think? Is there opposition? Well, of course. God sets his love and his name on Israel, and we know whatever God especially loves, Satan especially hates. So three things we know about Satan. He can't annihilate the Jewish people physically, <laughs> though he has tried, right? Pharaoh, Haman, Hitler. Yeah. Uh, Satan also seeks their spiritual destruction through false religion, idolatry, the occult, good works, atheism. He doesn't care what they believe as long as they don't believe the truth. And third, Satan doesn't want us to share the gospel or Jewish people to believe it. All right, so our response then is still boldness. Get out there, do it, because we've been called to. Amen. Yeah, and we have the scriptures that encourage our hearts. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world, 1 John 4, 4. And Yeshua promised that the gates of hell will not prevail against his church, which is made up of Jews and Gentiles. Amen. Wes Tabor with Life in Messiah here on The Land and the Book. Dr. John Kessler is a writer and contributing editor for the Moody Bible Institute publication known as Today in the Word. For 25 years, he served as a faculty member at Moody, and before that, he was a pastor in central Illinois for nine years. John has written many books, including When God is Silent. To me, uh, his voice just conveys comfort and wisdom, and I have just enormous respect for Dr. Kessler. Thank you for being part of our program today, John. Well, thank you, John. It's wonderful to be here. You, of course, are not unaware of the vast number of books that have been written on prayer. And uh, while most of them are probably more in the the how-to category, what made you want to write this one? Well, you know, that's a funny thing. For years, I always said that I would never write a book about prayer because I always felt like such an amateur at it, you know, mm-hmm. even though I was a pastor and a professor and I've been praying, really praying since before I was a Christian even. But there was just something about the experience that felt awkward to me. And then after a while, the more I thought about it, I realized that most of the Christians I know pretty much felt the same way that I did. And uh, I thought, you know what, maybe that's what we really need is a book about prayer written for amateurs by an amateur. (laughs) So I began to reflect on it and uh, put my thoughts together. And and that's why I did it, because I think, as you said, most of the books that I came across that had to deal with prayer really make, I think, uh, the wrong assumptions about the readers. You know, they assume that we either don't want to pray or that we don't know how to pray. And I think the problem is elsewhere. Well, how widespread a problem do you think uh, this frustration is, this frustration of, of sensing that God appears to be silent? My observation is that it is almost universal and that uh, the only people who don't share it are people who write books about prayer. (laughs) You know, most of the Christians I know don't feel prayer is important to them. They pray, but they would not say that they're great at it. They just feel a little bit odd about it. And um, so I, I think it's, I would say it's universal, to be honest. And certainly the experience, this sort of one-sided conversation with God, that's almost universal. I, I know that there are some people who, when they talk about their prayer life, they will make it sound like, you know, oh, I talk to God, and then he talks back to me, and then I talk to him, and he talks back to me. That has never really been my experience. 
and it is mm -hmm. not the experience of most of the Christians that I know. And I'm I'm not saying that it never happens or that it couldn't happen, yeah. but I don't think it's normative. Hey, how much of our of our complaining about God's silence arises from basic biblical ignorance? We perhaps believe incorrect or erroneous things about God's relationship to our prayers. What about that? I don't know if it's so much biblical ignorance as that we have been sort of misled by the way that people talk about prayer, because most of the time when those who teach us about prayer, they sort of describe it like it's an ordinary conversation. And so, you know, so we go into it with this set of assumptions based on all of the other conversations that we've had. Now, it is ordinary conversation in one sense. What is prayer? Well, in its essence, it's just talking to God. But when I look at all of the other conversations I have with people, there are elements involved there that are not present when I talk to God. For example, even when I'm not talking to you face to face, you know, there are cues that I'm listening to the tone of your voice, mm -hmm. the pitch. There's a there's an interaction going on. I say something, you say something, I say something. So there's a cooperation in the conversation. That's really not the case when it comes to prayer. When I pray, it's not that God has not spoken. It's that everything that he has said is recorded in Scripture. And there's a sense where I have to bring that with me into prayer, that it becomes sort of the backdrop that frames the expectation I have of how God will respond to what I have to say. It's not immediate, so that if I'm thinking this is going to be like the typical conversation I'm having, I will be missing all of the cues that I generally use to shape the way that I interact with someone because I can't see facial expression, I can't hear tone of voice. And even, you know, I think often when we're praying about things, we are praying with a specificity about details that I will not find in scripture. Yes. Like for example, I, you know, I maybe I'm praying about a particular job. I want this job or that job, you know. Well, maybe in general I can glean from scripture I should not take a job as a hitman for, <laughs> you know, for the mafia. <laughs> but it's probably not going to be so specific that it's going to tell me, "Oh yeah, I should work for General Motors or, you know, I should work for Chrysler or, or whoever." You know, I remember when I was young, great concern, who should I marry, mm -hmm. you know? Well, there are some general guidelines, but the Bible doesn't have the name. <laughs> you know, I'm not yeah. going to be able to look it up in the concordance. <laughs> so there are differences in this. When my, I use the ordinary tools of conversation, my voice, my heart, my mind, but the experience is radically different than most yeah. conversations I have. Dr. John Kessler is an award-winning author and retired faculty emeritus of pastoral studies at Moody Bible Institute in Chicago. He writes monthly columns for Today in the Word and Mature Living magazine. I want to turn the corner in a slightly different direction here for just a moment. John, if we uh, were to take the typical evangelical church service timeline and convert it into a pie chart, the sermon invariably gets the way biggest slice. Worship music would come in second place. It'd be a significant piece, but prayer would get a really small slice in most cases. Are we conveying to people with that allotment a message about the importance of prayer? Sometimes I'm just not comfortable. I don't, I'm not sure that we have arrived at a truly biblical model. Your thoughts? 
Yeah, I think you're probably right. And let's also recognize that that's probably more the case for some of our church traditions than others. Mm -hmm. There are other church traditions that have perhaps a more intense focus on prayer in their public worship. And often when that's the case, it's actually a little more structured. But the tradition I come from, prayer is often more of a private, it's assumed that we will pray, we'll pray in private, or we have a whole separate service devoted to it. You know, we have the prayer meeting, which mm -hmm. even in the prayer meeting, you know, most of the time is spent reviewing a list, you know, right? It's <laughs> yes, like, it's like, you know, right. if it's 50 minutes, you know, 40 minutes is probably taken up with uh, talking about our health problems and then, then a few minutes in prayer. Some of that, I think, is probably because we haven't thought about how to structure prayer for the congregation. Mm -hmm. Again, I think this is probably not true of all traditions. I think there are there are some traditions that have a far more robust uh, theology of corporate prayer and more disciplined practice of it. And, and that also comes with some of its own issues there, over-familiarity and the, you know, the problems that come with rote praying sometimes. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But um, yes, I guess that's a long, that's a long way to say, yeah. yes, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> We're uh, tackling a tough subject today on the land and the book, When God is Silent, our guest Dr. John Kessler has written a book by that title. So let's let's get right to the the sticking point. If you were counseling a listener right now who feels frustrated in their prayer life because God does seem silent to them, how would you interact with them? What would you what would you say to them? Well, first of all, I would affirm their experience and say I I have felt that and it has frustrated me as well. I would remind that person that silence is not always an indicator of inattention or detachment. Mm. Uh, that's one of the mistakes we make, that particularly when it comes to God's silence, that we assume because he is not giving us this immediate feedback that we would desire, that either he's not there at all or he's kind of detached. And so a lot of what we're doing in our praying is we're trying to sort of get his attention, you know, which yeah. is like raise, raise the voice, wave our arms <laughs> about whatever, whatever, you know, whatever we have to do. But if you look at the conversations that are the most meaningful to you in the people that you really feel are good people to talk to, they're good listeners. And what they do is they don't interrupt. They, mm. I can remember teaching a Bible study with, uh, somebody who's one person who was more experienced at it than me. And I remember being struck by how attentive they were in their listening. You know, they concentrated on what yeah. I was saying. They looked at me. And then when they did respond, I could tell that while they were listening, they weren't formulating what they really wanted to say instead. <laughs> you know, they were really concentrating on what I had to say. So my starting point would be to say, what seems to be silence to you is total attention. God hears you. And of course, what John tells us in his letters is that if we know that God hears us, we know that God will respond to our prayer. That's very affirming. I like that. But what is it that we could possibly do that might help the situation? Is there anything we can do? Yeah, I think there are a number of things we can do. One is, of course, the more we know about God in the scriptures, the healthier our view will be of him, because that's part of what we struggle with 
when we're praying is these assumptions we have about God and the way God perhaps is responding to us that are not really shaped by the grace and the truth of the scripture. Another thing we can do is something that the psalmist frequently does. When you read through the Psalms, you, you can see the psalmists, uh, those who wrote the Psalms, struggling with the same issue mm -hmm. because they often express sort of frustration about their prayer experience or, or the way God's responding to their prayers. And the thing that the psalmist does, the psalmist talks to himself. And it does it in a number of ways. Uh, sometimes when the psalmist is talking to himself, he's sort of a self-coach. He tells himself not to lose heart, not to lose faith, that God will act on his behalf. Sometimes the psalmist will sort of take the position of God and sort of speak what he expects God to do or to say to him. Paul sometimes does this in his, when you see Paul's prayers in the New Testament, where he prays for the person. He's very specific when he prays. And he also voices what he expects God to do mm -hmm. as a result of that prayer. And then I think, you know, really to be brutally honest, you know, just to be frank, to disclose your heart when you pray, open your heart to God as it truly is, rather than coming to God and basically trying to tell God what you think he wants to hear from you, because the only one you're fooling there is yourself. He can see right through you. Well, as I promised at the outset, this conversation to me has felt like a just a, a nice dialogue with a trusted friend, a wise counselor, and Dr. John Kessler is certainly that. And you can dig deeper into this subject as you check out his book, when God is silent. A link to that book and to John's website is at our website, thelandandthebook.org, thelandandthebook.org. John, we want to have you back. Hope you'll uh, carve out some time to spend with us. Oh, I'd love to do that, John. Thanks for having me. All right. Charlie Dyer's back, and I'm looking forward to a fresh set of your Bible questions coming up next here on The Land and the Book. Questions and answers. That's our focus next here on The Land and the Book. Welcome to segment three. I'm John Geiger. Our host, the guy offering the answers, is Dr. Charlie Dyer. He's a former pastor, a lover of the Bible, a student of Scripture, a student of Israel, and he welcomes your questions anytime. Right, Charlie? I do, John. I love it. What is the process, by the way? Somebody emails us at thelandandthebook at moody.edu. It goes right to you, right? It does. And I try and answer as quickly as I can, uh, usually the same day or sometimes within a day or two. It, it depends on how busy I am with other things. Uh, but they'll get an answer by email, and then we put it into the hopper and pull it out and answer it on air as well. Okay. Well, many of us wonder what the future holds for Israel. And while some things are uncertain, the Bible gives us an outline of what really will happen in the last days. Yeah, and our friends at Life and Messiah recently hosted a prophecy conference focused specifically on the topic, Israel and the Church Living in the Last Days. They're now making the videos of the conference available for early access exclusively to the Land and the Book listeners. You'll hear from many knowledgeable speakers on this topic, including Moody Radio host Michael Radelnik and me. These encouraging and informative videos will help you better understand God's future plans and how we can be actively waiting. To get access to this video series, visit lifeinmessiah.org and click on the Moody Radio button to sign up. That's lifeinmessiah.org. All right, we're heading straight to the book of Revelation today. 
where John is instructed to write to the seven churches in Asia. George says, it seems that there is no mention of any churches back in Israel at that time. Is there any indication as to what happened to the early churches that were started in Israel? Did the apostles spread out beyond Israel to spread the good news, and therefore they became more prominent? Well, the book of Acts does help us trace the growth and development of the early church. When the church began on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2, it was a church made up of Jewish believers. But as the book of Acts develops, we see the Jewish people begin to reject the message of the apostles. And as a result, the early church leadership in Judea experienced persecution. You know, Stephen was stoned, and it says that persecution rose against the church at that time, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. So as the church in Jerusalem grew smaller and weaker, those forced to scatter began sharing the gospel wherever they went. And Acts begins to focus on the ministry of the apostle Paul. Wherever he went, he preached to the Jews first, but also to the Greeks, to the Gentiles, and the Gentile church began growing. Now, there were still believers and churches in Israel during this time, but they were small and poor and persecuted. We're told in Acts 11, there was a famine in the larger region, which must have added to their struggles. In fact, a collection was taken among the churches in Antioch to provide for the brothers living in Judea, it says. So apparently the church in Jerusalem and in that region just kept growing smaller and struggling while the churches in the other areas grew and and prospered. By the time the book of Revelation was written around AD 95, the churches throughout the Roman Empire, well, they were largely composed of Gentiles with some Jews. And Jesus chose the seven churches in Asia Minor to represent seven different types of churches found in any given age. These seven, and not the struggling church in Judea, best mirrored the state of the church throughout history. Mark says, I have recently heard a couple of times that the Apostle Paul had been in prison three different times. By my count, Paul was imprisoned four separate times for durations of about two years each, in Philippi, Caesarea, in Rome, under house arrest, then in Rome in the dungeon before he was executed. Is the Caesarean imprisonment under Felix generally overlooked, or are the Roman governments generally counted as one imprisonment? Yeah, I'm not sure who you heard from, but by my last count, I actually can find five times, I think, when Paul was imprisoned. Uh, The second one in the Roman barracks in Jerusalem usually isn't counted. So if you take that one out, because it was only a few days, uh, then I see the same four that I think you do. Uh, He was imprisoned in Philippi for one night in Acts 16. He was imprisoned in Jerusalem in the Roman barracks. That's that one I just mentioned in Acts 22. He was imprisoned in Caesarea then, where he was taken for two years, Acts 23, Uh, Then his first imprisonment, which was a house arrest in Rome, that's how the book of Acts ends. And then his final imprisonment in Rome, which is not mentioned in the book of Acts, but I think is is referenced in 2 Timothy chapter 4, and that's where Paul was finally put to death. That question, by the way, from Mark, who listens to us on 103.3 in Cleveland, WCRF. Good to connect with a Moody Radio listener there. George takes us to 1 Timothy 5.8. We're told that those who do not care or provide for their own household are worse than unbelievers. Yet in Luke 9, verses 59 and 16, Jesus told the man, let the dead bury the dead. Apparently, the man's father was still living, and he wanted to care for his father until he died. Would this have been wrong for this man to want to care for his father, or was he just making an excuse for not wanting to follow Jesus? Yeah, and I think the answer is found by looking carefully at, at both verses in context. In, in 1 Timothy 5.8, Paul's talking about the, the practical outworking of faith in demonstrating support for one's family. An individual who would deliberately allow his family to suffer material need isn't demonstrating genuine godliness. That's what Paul is saying there. Now, in Luke 9, though, the issue isn't providing for one's family. 
uh, Jesus called on the man to follow him. Uh, Jesus was on his way, by the way, to Jerusalem uh, for ultimately to be put to death. But he's calling on this man to follow him. The man asked to be excused so he can go bury his father. But if his father had already died, he would already be taking care of those arrangements since burial took place the same day you died. So as we look at that passage, what he's really saying is, my dad is still around. If I can just stay with him until he dies, which may be next week, next month, next year, who knows? Uh, he doesn't uh, give an impression. We don't know if his father was even sick. But Jesus stresses the cost of true discipleship. He said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. So the encounter with this man happens as Jesus is heading to Jerusalem, and the man is really looking for an excuse, and a rather flimsy excuse, why he should be excused from following Jesus. Here's a question from Frederick. He says, in a recent Q&A on Revelation 7, you refer to the 144,000 as Jews. Shouldn't it be 144,000 Israelites? Judah and Benjamin were called Jews. Revelation 7 verse 4 refers to all the tribes of the children of Israel, not Jews. Plus, I can't find anywhere in the King James where it's the God of the Jews or the God of the Christians, but everywhere it's the God of Israel or the God of the children of Israel, the people of Israel, his people Israel. So if we believe in Christ Jesus as God on earth, aren't we all Israel, which means a prince of God? Well, okay, there's two parts to that question, and I agree with the first part, but not the second. You're correct in noting the 144,000 are from all the tribes of Israel, which is what 7.4 actually says. Now, I was using Jew in a less technical sense to refer to all Israelites. That's similar to what uh, John did in, in John chapter 5 and John chapter 6, where he talks about a feast of the Jews, referring to one of the feasts where all Israelites were to travel to Jerusalem. Paul does the same thing elsewhere. He says he was giving the gospel to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So, uh, yeah, I was using it wrong, and, and uh, they are 144,000 from the 12 tribes of Israel. But I do disagree with your second part of the statement, which says all believers today are Israel. Now, the key passage in this regard is Romans 11, which is the one place where Paul specifically talks about the relationship between Israel and the church. And in verses 25 to 26, he says, don't, don't be ignorant of the mystery that Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of Gentiles has come in, and then all Israel will be saved. So in that passage, Israel refers to the ethnic national Israel, and Paul makes that distinction between them and the church. He doesn't equate the church as being Israel. Lenny wants to know, what happened to the Amalekites? What nation were they absorbed into? What nation are they today? Well, this one gets a little complex. That's kind of a fascinating question, actually. One detail is in Saul's campaign. Remember, Saul was sent against the Amalekites in 1 Samuel 15, and they were a nomadic tribe, it says. They were living south of Israel and into the Sinai region. And apparently, another part of the tribe lived in what's today southern Jordan and northern Saudi Arabia. So two parts of this tribe had separated. And I say that because Saul takes care of the, the Amalekites south of Israel, and then David also has a campaign against them later. But the ones who are on the eastern side of the Jordan River and east of the Dead Sea, well, they're mentioned in the book of Judges, in Judges chapter 6. They're the ones who came into Israel in the time of Gideon. And uh, they were part of the Amalekites, the Midianites, and the sons of the east, it says, who attacked Israel. So we're never told what happened to the remnant of all these Amalekites. My best guess they were probably absorbed through intermarriage into some of the other large nomadic tribes that also remained south and east of Israel. Apparently, they still remember their ethnic background because later in Esther chapter 3, we're told about Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, Agag being the king of the Amalekites in the time of Saul. So he could trace his lineage back to Agag, 
but likely they were simply swallowed up into these other Bedouin groups and lost their distinction as a unique tribe. John says, when you go to Israel, can you visit the Dome of the Rock? And if so, can you share what this place means to you as a Christian? Well, I've been to Israel. I've been to the Dome of the Rock a number of years ago, though. I decided not to go there and take groups there because you actually have to pay to go in and you are supporting the work they're doing. And right now, you're not even allowed inside. I can say, though, based on my experience, that Muslims wouldn't look with favor on Christians explaining what the site means to us because we would say it's where the Jewish temple once stood and where Jesus walked. They would say there was never a temple there. Uh, There are other better ways to share our faith with Muslims there in the land. And that's a look at our questions from the week and yours welcome, of course, anytime you want to email it to us. Here's how you connect the land and the book at moody.edu. That's the land and the book at moody.edu. We've saved the best for last. It's Charlie Dyer's devotional and it's next right here. The Bible says there is wisdom in the counsel of many. What about the notion, though, of biblical counseling? Where do you land on that? It's a conversation we'll brush up against in Charlie Dyer's devotional coming up, Biblical Counseling 101. Where are we going today, Charlie? Uh, We're heading to the book of Jeremiah and one of my favorite passages. All right, we'll get to that devotional. First, though, this thought from somebody who's traveled to the Holy Land and brings back this memory for us. Spokane, Washington, and I just wanted to comment that I did go to Israel and took a Holy Land tour about four years ago, and it was life-changing for me to put everything in perspective as far as the Bible went. It just made the Bible become more real, and as I read the Bible, I can relate, I can remember what I saw over there. It just made it more real. Actually, I'm kind of a visual person, so it really made an impact on me, and I would suggest that anyone that could by any means get over there and go through that, it would change your life forever. I went to Israel in 1983. Uh, I've taught Sunday school now for probably close to 30 years or more, but going to the Holy Land uh, made such an impact on my life. Now when I'm teaching or when I'm reading the Word of God, I can see the areas that I saw back that long ago and uh, just made it more dear to my heart. I'm intrigued with your title today for the devotional segment, Biblical Counseling 101. Charlie, take it away. Yeah, John, thanks. Early in my seminary career, I took a class on biblical counseling taught by two well-known Christian psychiatrists. I learned to appreciate both of them, but I did have some concerns as the class began. I'd heard reports of other psychiatrists undermining God's word, so I went into the class with some questions. But during the very first class session, two events happened that dispelled my anxiety. The first was a humorous but true comment made by one of the professors who said, most counselors go into counseling to try to solve their own problems. It was a reminder that counseling, psychology, and psychiatry are all soft sciences populated by imperfect people who do struggle with their own issues. The second event was when we went through the course syllabus. One requirement was memorizing scripture. And the first scripture we were to memorize was Jeremiah 17, verses 9 and 10, which the one professor called the foundation for all biblical counseling. So what is this foundational passage? 
The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. The first of these two verses speaks to the reality of human depravity. Because of humanity's fall in the Garden of Eden, sin permeates the core of our being. It's not that we're as wicked as we could be, but the reality is that sin permeates us. And one result is that we've developed ways to justify our sinful actions by deceiving and deluding even ourselves. In Hebrew, the heart represents the totality of our inner or immaterial nature. It includes our consciousness of who we are and why we do what we do. Like a master counselor, God points out the key problem. Our heart, our innermost consciousness of our own selves, is more deceitful than all else. God's diagnosis is that we're all deceitful tricksters at heart. But Jeremiah then asks a disturbing question. Who can understand it? That is, who can truly know what's happening within his or her own depraved heart and mind? And the word Jeremiah uses for know or understand, it's the same word that's used in Genesis to euphemistically describe sexual relations. And Adam knew his wife, and she conceived and bore him a son. The implication is that our hearts are so deceitful that we can fool even ourselves regarding our thoughts and motives. But even if we might not fully understand our thoughts and motives, they're not hidden from God. The very next verse says, I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind. We might be able to rationalize our actions and even at times fool ourselves. But God not only sees what we do, he also sees why we're doing it. And now you can see the wisdom of these professors in class having us begin by focusing on the Word of God and what it has to say about human nature and our own thought process. Well, so far, this sounds like a rather unusual devotional because we've not visited any location in Israel. So follow me out of the classroom and into the Judean wilderness to the Wadi Kilt between Jerusalem and Jericho as we explore the practicality of Jeremiah's words. Earlier in chapter 17, Jeremiah took the words of Psalm 1 and turned them on their head, describing the person who's blessed and the person who's cursed in reverse order. Uh, Jeremiah started by writing, Cursed is the one who trusts in man, who depends on flesh for his strength, and whose heart turns away from the Lord. Such a person, he says, will be like a bush in the wastelands, who will not see prosperity when it comes. He uses the word tov, or good, for prosperity, picturing the good rain God promised to send from the sky. Those who choose to trust in what they can see, touch, grasp, uh, rather than the Lord, well, they're truly self-deluded. They don't realize they're now outside the place where God can bless. The good rain, an image of blessing, falls in the hill country, not out here in the wilderness. In contrast, the one who's truly blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, and whose trust is the Lord. The word for trust expresses the idea of well-being and security that comes from having something in which we're able to place our confidence. It's looking out the window of your house at a blizzard while seated on your couch in front of a roaring fire holding a cup of hot chocolate. You know you're safe in spite of what's happening outside. Well, that's the kind of confident trust Jeremiah says characterizes the person who's blessed. Uh, Jeremiah compares such individuals to a tree planted by one of the flowing streams that can be found out here in the wilderness. Because such a tree has roots that extend to the water, it will not fear when the heat comes, nor will it be anxious in a year of drought, nor cease to yield fruit. While the external situation might change, 
the source of nourishment and sustenance never does. And it's that dependable supply that removes fear and anxiety. So what do these two plants in the wilderness have to do with Jeremiah's description of the human heart? The two thoughts are placed side by side in Jeremiah 17, but why? What's the connection? The two types of plants represent two types of people. One group tries to handle life's problems by trusting in their own wisdom or in promises made by others. The other group faces life's problems by reaching out to the Lord for his wisdom and strength and trusting in his promises of help and protection. In both instances, the two plants face difficulties, represented by a time of drought in the wilderness. But there's one key difference. The cursed plant never experiences the refreshing rain, the tov or good, because it's located outside the place of blessing. In contrast, the blessed plant is always connected to a stream of living or running water, the source of blessing. It will experience times of trouble. The the heat and the drought experiences of life will come, but the nourishment it receives from the living water sustains it in those times of difficulty. And that's when Jeremiah applies this reality to the truth of verses 9 and 10. The human heart is deceitful and sick, and it will try to trick us into believing we can handle whatever comes our way. I'll just look within myself to find the strength I need, or if necessary, I'll turn to others for help. Such an individual struggles through life, never understanding why he or she can't seem to stay ahead to reach the place of comfort and peace and rest that's always so elusive. Meanwhile, the blessed individual finds peace and satisfaction by turning his or her problems over to the Lord and allowing him to handle them. They don't fully understand all that's happening around them, but they've discovered God is present and that he can be trusted. And when the difficult times do come, those times of struggle that are common to everyone, the blessed individual is the one who has already extended his or her roots to the ever-present, ever-flowing source of nourishment and comfort. So what kind of plant are you? Take some time today to read Jeremiah 17, verses 5 to 10. Focus on the two kinds of individuals And then focus on God's insight into human nature. You might not be able to even trust your own heart, but you can trust the God who understands the human heart and who can give you the strength and wisdom to thrive in spite of all life's heat waves and droughts. Thank you, Charlie. Always insightful. Appreciate that devotional. You can hear it again at our website, thelandandthebook.org. I think that's cool. The podcast there waiting for you to share with a friend or just enjoy yourself. And again, you'll find it at the website, thelandandthebook.org. Love to hear from you and know how this program is connecting with you. Our email address is thelandandthebook at moody.edu. Time goes by too quickly, but Lord willing, we'll get together again next week at the same time. And we'll encourage you to be praying for Israel as we wait for them. I'm John Geiger on behalf of our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer, and producer Dan Anderson. The Land and the Book is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute.